So let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we thank you for your blessings. Uh, we can easily take for granted coming to this place sometimes, uh, but uh, we appreciate it so much. And I pray, Lord, that your blessing will be in this time right now, and that everything we do here will be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're spending a couple weeks here uh, reflecting on a couple of chapters in Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5. And we spent last week talking about chapter 4 and this scene that takes place in heaven. And I just, just to call your mind back to that for a moment, the way that God in Revelation 4 chooses to reveal himself is very interesting. And, and I, I say it that way, chooses to reveal himself because however we would be able to perceive the reality of God, who is spirit and dwells in unapproachable light, is, is not going to be the fullness of the reality because we're not capable of perceiving the fullness of his reality. It's going to be whatever context he has chosen to make himself available to our sight. Now, if you want to understand enough about him, you can look at at other humans because he says we are created in his image or after his likeness so so in that sense what we are is an approximation of what he is in the context of of three-dimensional space with time and flesh and all of these things but it's wrong for us to assume that what we are is what he is now it's a little different with Jesus because he became one of us so now he lives in glorified flesh, and what he is is what we will become. But it's fascinating to me in Revelation 4 the way that God chooses to reveal himself. And it's paralleled in Ezekiel chapter 1, and we talked about that. But, but he chose to reveal himself, and it said he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, glowing metal. Maybe, maybe as you reflect on this, if you were here last week, what sticks out in your mind of the description of God that we get in Revelation chapter 4 or Ezekiel chapter 1? And, and, and I'm going, going to go beyond just the hypothetical here, and I'm going to give you a second to just, just tell me back something about that description last week where we had all the pictures up there. What about that description of the throne of God sticks out to you? Anybody, just call it out. Flashes of lightning. Okay, very good. That gets your attention, doesn't it? Yeah, what else? What was it? Awesomeness. Yeah, it, it, that's the, the ultimate effect, isn't it? Overwhelming awesomeness. Do you remember Alicia came up and talked a little bit about her experience and those pictures of the clouds and how powerfully that picture captures the that, that notion of the glowing presence of God surrounded by these clouds of glory and the fire that went back and forth. Yeah, we, we, don't, always, we don't always appreciate the transcendent glory of God. And it's, it's to our loss. Because I like to be thrilled. I like to be excited. I like to see amazing things. It would be a real tragedy if I consigned God to the realm of predictable, understandable, contained, when in fact He is so much more than those things. So this is what we talked about last week. And, and it ends 
the, the end of that particular chapter, it's all part of this general description of normal at the throne of God. And I, so as we get started today, I want to start at the end of chapter 4 again. So if you want to take one of the Bibles there in front of you, feel free to grab it and open up to Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> and I'm going to begin in verse 8. And it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we just pause there for a second and realize that beings that are so remarkable they essentially defy description that if we just saw the beings themselves, these four living creatures, we would be astonished. But these amazing creations of God spend all of their time being astonished at the glory of the one who sits on the throne. So that's like something that would amaze us is amazed by something else. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So this is the description of the reality at the throne of God and the worship that takes place there that is centered in the reality of God as creator. But now we're going to add a new scene. So this chapter 4 is kind of a description of what it's like all the time. But chapter 5 now is going to, going to talk about a particular moment that takes place at the throne of God. Because into this scene of worship it becomes obvious that there's a problem. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back and sealed, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, I'm not sure I'd be able to tell the difference between a mighty angel and a regular angel. I don't know how that works exactly. But, but apparently, something about this angel was like, whoa, that guy's powerful. Or that woman's powerful. Or whatever an angel is. I don't know. I probably don't do a gender thing there. But... Lacking any other way to explain it. A mighty angel. Why this specific? Well, I want to suggest to you the specific of this is contained within the question that this angel asked. This angel who appears so transcendently powerful to John, this angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And contained within the question is the realization that not even this mighty angel can do it. There is a scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne. And nobody can open it. Verse 3, and no one in heaven, that would be all the angels, or on earth, that would be all of us, or under the earth, 
Not exactly sure what we're going for there, but presumably someone that died maybe already, I don't know, was able to open the scroll or look at it, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. All right. So you might just blow past that, that intense expression of emotion section from John there, not, not really thinking about it, but let me try to put this in context. Sometimes when you have a dream, you're sleeping at night, you have a dream, have you ever had really intense emotion in a dream? Where it comes on you, it's so strong when you wake up, it takes you about a half an hour to get over it. I mean, that's how strong it can be. And it can come on like that in a dream. I kind of think that's what's going on here, is that John is having this experience. But what is driving this experience? We're only told that there's a scroll here and no one can open it. But it appears obvious to John that it is, it is essential that this scroll must be opened and acted on, but no one is worthy. I think what John is realizing in this moment is the true hopeless condition of humanity. Because what lies in this scroll is God's solution to the problem of sin, suffering, death, and destruction. And the only way that there can be an end to all of these things is someone must be found who can take the scroll from the hand of the one who sits on the throne and open the seals. But no one can. And what it means is, is that the world is stuck in decay, degradation, sin, despair, sorrow, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, stop right there because there's, a, there's something going on here that takes place in Revelation a lot. And that is, I heard versus I saw. I heard this description, but I saw this thing. It happens a lot of times in Revelation. And the, the purpose of it, I believe, is to, by defining the extremes... One is in the description, the other is in the sight. You bring together a greater whole than if you just describe one thing. So how does it work in this case? The elder is speaking to John and saying, no, there is one powerful enough. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. Now this is an interesting phrase because on the one hand, he's the descendant of David. But on the other hand, it's saying, no, but he's also the root of David. He's what gave David the power in the first place. So this great lion has conquered, but then John looks and he doesn't see a lion, does he? He sees a lamb. But not just a lamb, a lamb that has been slain. Yet even on the slain lamb, 
is an indication of power. He has seven horns, which, which is like saying the, the perfection of power. Horns are about power. And this lamb has seven horns. Seven is the number of perfection. And he has seven eyes. What's that about? Well, that's the perfection of seeing. That means he can see all things. So this one, this lamb that has been slain, has all of this power. Now, now I want to talk about this for a second. Don't let yourself get trapped with a flat Jesus that is made out of someone else's whims or someone else's fears. Don't get caught in a two-dimensional Jesus because he's not just lion, he's also lamb. He's not just first, he's also last. He's not just alpha, he's also omega. He's not just redeemer, he's also lord. He's not just king, he's also brother. Don't get trapped in a two-dimensional version of Jesus. Because he is so much more to that. And how you need to respond to Jesus is situationally dependent. What do I mean by that? Alright, so the book of Revelation, we understand to be written by John, who was the disciple of Jesus, who spent time with Jesus. I want to give you two stories where John and Jesus are involved. And I want you to see the difference in the response. The first one takes place in John chapter 13. <clears throat> John chapter 13, verse 21. This is Jesus with the disciples at the Last Supper. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of, the, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, when John refers to the disciple that Jesus loved, it's understood he's talking about himself. So what John is saying here is he's at the table with Jesus, and he's right next to Jesus. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, that's John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, I want you to appreciate this moment. Here they are, they're at the table, and they don't sit at the table like we do. They reclined at the table. And, and John leans over, essentially right up against Jesus, and says, Lord, who, who is it? It's kind of a whisper. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he, handed, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So what I want you to get from this is, is this, this interaction here. It's very close. It's very intimate. It's very leaning forward and talking in whispers with, with one you're very close with. Okay, hold that in your mind. Now we go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on, the, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now if you go on from here, the next few verses, you'll get a description of all of this. 
But we're going to skip over that for time, down to verse 17. Now listen to these words. John turns. He hears the voice like a trumpet. He turns. When I saw him, this is the one speaking, who is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Same John, same Jesus. One setting, John leans over, and they chat very intimately. Other setting, John falls at his feet as though dead. Can you reconcile both of those experiences with the same two guys taking place? I want to challenge you to do that. Because true worship involves whispering intimacy and falling on your face. It's both things. Don't have a narrow Jesus. You need the whole thing. Yes, you need the friend closer than a brother. But you also need the conquering king who has conquered death. You need the experience of confession and worship, but you also need the experience of being overwhelmed in the presence of a being of great glory. We need to learn to interact with Jesus in all the contexts. The intimate closer than a brother, the falling before him uh, as with the words of Peter, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. We should be willing to say that every now and then because he won't and because it brings us to an honesty about our own hearts the loud praise in the community of believers we need to be able to do that and also the quiet reverence in solitude when we walk with the Lord one-on-one -on -one. see this is a full worship experience not a narrow one don't recreate him according to your whims or anyone else's whims let him be the fullness of what he is. But now back to the throne room. Revelation 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now I want to pause right there for a second because I think this imagery has meaning that's useful to us. The 24 elders are representative of humanity. And in this moment of, of Jesus taking the scroll, in other words, we've reached the moment where now we're no longer stuck and we can begin to move towards the time when God will set everything back in order. He takes the scroll and in this moment they come forward in worship and they have a harp and they have bowls of incense. I want to suggest to you this. The harp represents our bringing songs of praise to God. And that that is an important moment. And we come to Jesus with songs of praise. We've sung one here. We're going to sing three more. These are important moments. Not just important moments as to whether or not I like the song. Okay, these are important moments because they are represented at the throne of God as the people of God bringing praise. 
And this is something we do. And this is an important work that we do. And it's the most participatory event of the whole service. So we've got to get into it with our whole heart. Because this is part of what's supposed to happen at the throne of God. This is what's represented. We are bringing praise to the Savior and Redeemer. So that's the heart. But then there's also the bowls. The bowl full of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. This is another thing. And it's personal and it's corporate. When we pray together, that the prayer rises up before the throne of God as sweet-smelling incense. Even, even your prayers that are anything but sweet-smelling rise up because they are the reality of the experience of the saints. Don't, don't fail to bring incense to the throne of God. Okay, your prayer is not just about your situation. It's a part of the whole of what God is doing. It, the people of God bring their prayers and it rises before the throne as incense. So don't miss it. Add your special flavor, your special smell to what is coming up before the throne of God. Your songs of praise, your prayers. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Why is it a new song? It's a new song because what has taken place here is, is the beginning of a new reality. You see, what took place with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the end of the previous reality and the beginning of the next. The first reality started great and went bad. This next reality that Jesus starts, starts pretty rough, but will end in the glory of the coming of the Lord. See, this is, this is what's happening here. And because a new day has come, a new song has been written. And here's the song. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Remember how this chapter starts? No one's worthy. But now, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The work of Jesus has redeemed you and has made you part of His kingdom and a priest to God. This is who you are now because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the only one in heaven or earth worthy to take the scroll. He has done what no one else, even among the angels, could do. He has won the key battle in the victory of God. And he can now set in motion God's ultimate plan to set everything back to the original created order. This moment at the throne is amazing. If only we could have been there that day. How blessed John was to get a sight of the day that Jesus returns triumphantly. 
and takes the scroll of our future of hope and love from the hand of the one on the throne and begins to open the seals that releases the reality that ends with the coming of the Lord. How did Jesus win? It says he was slain and by his blood he ransomed his people from every tribe and people and nation. And he opened the way for us to be the people of God, the people who serve God and live out the purposes of God's kingdom both right now and into eternity. See, we don't have to wait on this. We can right now be living the purposes of God. And then we'll just continue it on. Now next Sabbath, next Sabbath is Easter weekend and we will focus specifically on these events that lead to this victory. And it's going to be a special day and there's, there's going to be some songs mixed in and it's going to be a really neat Sabbath. I hope you'll be here for this. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? You know that one? Our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Most of us learned it in King James. Do you know what the next line says? The next line says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You know what I think the biggest difference right now between earth and heaven is? Heaven is where God's will is done. Earth is where God's will is not done. Or at least not much. That prayer is saying, make us into the people who do your will and let it start now. Now the fullness will come when the kingdom has come in fullness. But there's nothing stopping us from doing God's will now. Jesus is the hero at the throne of God. And he's rightly praised for the victory that he's won. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's an amazing parallel here. And this is one of those examples of how the Bible is just this amazing book. But there's an amazing parallel here between what is said here by these angels and what is said in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We see another description of this scene. Now this is an amazing thing because maybe you could think that after everything with Jesus had happened, that John might come up with and imagine a scene like this and maybe he made the whole thing up. I don't know how much of a skeptic you are, but maybe you might think that. But you're going to have a harder time thinking Daniel came up with it before Jesus even happened. Because even if you're a person who doesn't believe there was a man named Daniel who wrote this book some 500 years before Jesus showed up, it was still around at least for sure by 200 years before Jesus showed up. And even if you're a skeptic in that context, how are you going to explain this parallel description? Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now, we've made a mistake here sometimes. 
We always assume clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, he's coming to the earth. No, that's not what it says. Listen to what it says. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. That's the one on the throne. Think about the Revelation scene. There's one seated on the throne. He has a scroll. And a lamb approaches him and takes the scroll. That's exactly what Daniel's describing. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. This is the exact same description of the exact same event where Jesus wins the victory, claims the power, takes the scroll, begins to open up the reality of what's to take place. Jesus is your Savior and your Redeemer, but that's not all He is. He's also the rightful King of all of God's creation, and He will establish the kingdom that will never pass away or be destroyed. And our worship should be expressed in a way that reveals that we understand all of this. Now we have to grow into it, but we should be growing into a fullness of worship, not a narrowness. Our Creator God and our Lord Jesus Christ deserve the worship from everything that they have created, and then redeemed. Revelation 5, verse 13. And that's what happens. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Did I leave anything out there? Well, did John leave anything out there? No. Heaven, earth, under the earth, in the water, and anything else, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So here's the thing. It says everything said this. So far, I'm the only one that said it. So here's what we're going to have to do. And I, I, I don't apologize. It's just what the Bible requires. We need to say this. It could be because it says every creature. So if you are here and alive today, I need you to say this with me. So you may want to grab that Bible in front of you so you can see what these words are. Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And we're, we're just going to go down to the part that they say. And it starts with, to him who sits on the throne. So are you ready? Let's say this together. Here we go. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Okay, that wasn't bad, but... I was not overwhelmed that you were really attributing blessing and honor and glory and might and that what you said was going to go on for more than just a very short amount of time. So maybe we need to make another run at this 
with a little more energy. So here we go. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Not bad. Not bad. I, I almost heard you over me. Now I talk a little loud. So here's what we're going to do, just to bring it home. One more time. Stand up. Because we can't give a praise to God just in a, in, in a narrowness there. So here we go. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, I won't make you do the last part because they, they all fall down in worship and that's a little further than we're ready to go. But you can sit back down. That can be your fall down. What's it like to worship like that? And who is this Jesus that calls us to himself? I need Alicia to come help me really quick here. So right at the tail end, yeah, there's a mic right there, I think. Um, Alicia's going to take this mic that's on the front row here. I need her to come help me for just a second because she's really good friends with Jesus. And she knows his voice when he calls us. So I've painted the picture of the great and mighty Jesus. Now who, who's calling us and what's he saying? friend of mine, I would say more accurately, and he's everything we need. And that idea of transcendence and eminence, just in that passage we read, to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb, that lamb who's coming with all the power and the might and the glory, there's that constant tension and um, juxtaposition of power and lamb. And that lamb, that king, is the one that gave an ancient invitation in Matthew that he's still giving us today. It's Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, and you may know it in different versions, but it's come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I don't know about you today, but I have a little idea because you live in the same world that I do that maintaining soul rest right now is really hard because the images that fill our minds and our imaginations are not restful. Our schedules for many of us are not restful. And for me, I have a really good imagination. I'm very visual. And the imagination brings me images of things in the Ukraine that I don't want to see and that I only can do some about. And the worries and the fears and the uncertainties don't bring soul rest. 
But what I have found is that whatever is biggest in my mind, whatever is, I can't think of a way to say this well right now, but that light right now is the brightest in my eye right now. But if you were to open the curtains and the sun was there, the sun would be brighter, but that might look brighter because it's closer to me. And whatever we let be brightest in our eyes is what is going to control how we feel and our level of peace. And that is what was so wonderful to me about what I got to see that day with my friend Julie, that incredible sunset, is because God said, I am bigger. I am more beautiful. I'm more powerful. I'm more creative. I'm more loving. I am everything you need. And I am much more than anything else you see or anything else you feel in your body, in your mind, in our country. As we look at the Ukraine, or as my son keeps telling me, not the Ukraine, as we look at Ukraine, as we wonder what's going to be next, it depends on what is biggest in our mind, whether we will have soul rest or not. And so when we come to Jesus and we really worship him and he becomes bigger in our imagination as he is in reality, then we can have rest because we know that he is enough, that he is more than enough, so much more than enough. And when we can bow before him, whether it's in your living room, on the ottoman, or on a mountain, or just in the quiet of your heart, wherever you are, then we can just exhale. And our brow becomes unfurrowed, and our shoulders can settle into place, and we can breathe and our heart rate can come into rhythm of God's great heart, into the rhythms of grace. And we can remember who is in control and how it ends and who is God and that it's not us, thank God, but there's somebody in control that deserves the control and there's somebody who's judge who we can trust. I don't know, it's pretty good when we can remember his place and our place. Then soul rest begins and our anchor holds. Think of um, Mike, it's not Michael Card, it's Fernando Ortega's words. Jesus, King of angels, heaven's light. Hold my hand and keep me through this night. Jared, come on back and bring uh, your band because we're about to sing three songs that 
if you will let yourself, will really focus you on this Jesus that we're talking about. And the first one is Waymaker. And that's, that's what he's done. And the one who has made the way for us and has, has called us to his kingdom is this hero at the throne of God. The only one worthy in all of the created universe to put God's plan of restoration into action. He did what we couldn't do. He called us to be a part of his kingdom. And he set in motion this process that we're a part of that will lead to his return and the reestablishment forever of his kingdom. He's the way maker. He's the one that's going to bring us home.